we engage with other cultures? How does the exchange of people address violent extremism? How can cities become players on the world stage? I'm Madison Jones, and this is the Public Diplocast. A bit about me, I'm a second-year grad student in the Master of Public Diplomacy program at USC, a grad fellow at the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, former non-resident research fellow at the U.S. Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy at the U.S. Department of State, and president of the Master of Public Diplomacy student organization here at USC. Sponsored by the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, this is Episode 2, Religion, Diversity, and Global Understanding. Our first public diplocast explored the definition of public diplomacy, its origins, and some ways it's being practiced. But we so often view international affairs through politics and economics as the main drivers behind policy. But what is the thread that binds millions of people together? What is the one thing that could promote incredible peace and unity, but also promote extremism and violence? Religion. Faith diplomacy is integral to understanding the world around us. Faith is a form of identity to millions of people around the world. So why doesn't understanding different faith communities seem like a main focus of foreign policy? Former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said, Religion is a powerful force, but its impact depends entirely on what it inspires people to do. The challenge for policymakers is to harness the unifying potential of faith while containing its capacity to divide. This requires, at a minimum, that we see spiritual matters as a subject worth studying. To explore the study of faith, religious diversity, and the incredible ways in which young people today are viewing spirituality in a different way, I am proud to welcome Dean Varun Soni. Dean Soni is the Dean of Religious Life here at the University of Southern California. He received his bachelor's degree in religion from Tufts University, a master of theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, a master's through the Department of Religious Studies at UCSB, a JD degree from UCLA School of Law, where he also completed the Critical Race Studies program and served as an editor for the Journal of Islamic and Near Eastern Law. He earned his PhD at the University of Cape Town, where his doctoral research focused on religion and popular culture. Dean Sony is currently a university fellow at the USC Center on Public Diplomacy and an adjunct professor at the USC School of Religion. Born in India and raised in Southern California, he has family on five continents, and they collectively represent every major religious tradition in the world. Well, welcome, Dean Sony. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off with a theme that I've heard you discuss at a few events here on campus. You talk a lot about the incredible religious diversity here in Los Angeles, but also right here on USC's campus. Would you mind sharing a little bit sure, about that? Sure, of course. So here at USC, I have the great privilege, the great honor um, to oversee almost 100 different student religious groups representing every faith tradition on the planet and many denominational perspectives. That's more religious groups than at any other American university. Uh, we also have over 60 campus chaplains. They represent the full spectrum of faith traditions of the world, including denominational perspectives. We even have a humanist chaplain for atheists and agnostic students. Um, that's the largest and most diverse group of chaplains working on any American campus. Um, and we do this work right here in the heart of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the most religiously diverse city in human history. Um, additionally, we have 11,000 international students on our campus. So it's not just that religions from around the world are coming together here. Um, people from the same tradition from around the world are meeting here too. So it's not just that we have diversity across religious traditions. We have diversity within each tradition too. So Muslim students from all over the Muslim world are here. Um, Hindu students from all over the world are here. 
uh, a Sunni student from, um, you know, um, Saudi Arabia might meet uh, a Shia student from Detroit. They're both going to learn about the complexity and sort of the expansiveness of their own faith in a way that um, they might not have otherwise had they not met. So USC is the place where the world comes together and meets. We have 130 countries represented. We have all 50 states represented. We have uh, every faith tradition represented. Um, and so for me, doing the work of religious life, being able to engage with such diversity uh, across traditions and within traditions gives me the extraordinary opportunity to really create programs, events, and opportunities that empower our students to think about how their faith can be part of a solution to the world's great crises and not part of the problem. And to me, that's, that's, that's the real joy of the job. Now, in this podcast, we're talking a lot about international relations and different ways that public diplomacy can engage other cultures. Um, and so when practicing international relations, it's really easy to view the world through the lens of politics and economics, but we so often forget about religion, unless, of course, it's a conversation about extremism. That's right. So should religion, do you think religion should be a focus in conducting foreign policy? Should we seek to understand world religions more? Uh, I... I'm obviously biased in this regard. I spent my life studying religion, but yes, absolutely we should. Um, I don't know if religion should be a driving force for determining policy, given that we're a secular country, but we need to be religiously literate in how we engage and create policy. And so under the Obama administration, the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnership was expanded into the State Department. Uh, John Kerry um, pushed it even further. There was an ambassador for religious freedom that worked for him. And what he was trying to do was create a shop within the state that was religiously literate so that just as you think about economic impact of policy, just as you think about the political impact of policy, the cultural impact of policy, you also think about what it might mean in terms of religion. And um, the reality is we live in a very religious world, even as the United States is becoming less and less formally religious. And if you're going to be engaging with almost any country in the world and you don't understand their religious history, their religious values, their religious customs, uh, there can be a lot of collateral damage done in policy even when it's not intended. So um, whenever we think of any issue in the world, there is a religious component, whether it be income inequality, whether it be bias or discrimination, whether it be environmental um, degradation, all of those things have either religious causes or religious solutions. And if we're not fully engaging stakeholders across uh, a variety of perspectives, then we're not going to get to the solutions that are complex and interdisciplinary by nature. So um, yes, there is something called faith diplomacy. I think it's a real thing. There are ways to engage it that are helpful and meaningful. And I think it's also important for the United States as a secular country to show what that engagement with religion looks like. The United States has a very unique conception of secularism. Constitutional secularism in the United States looks different than secularism, say, in France. In the U.S., secularism is all religions in the public sphere. Uh, but we don't endorse or establish one tradition over another. That goes back to the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Um, Congress shall not endorse or establish any tradition, but that doesn't mean there's no religion in the public sphere. It means all religions can flourish as long as one is not promoted over another. That's the way I do my job at USC, but I think that is a model for uh, the world in terms of respecting religious difference and identity but not creating governing structures that um, only view the world through the perspective of religion. So to me, this is the flip side of, a, of theocracy. And um, to me, 
those kinds of American values, the values of inclusion, of diversity, of celebrating our differences and our similarities. Those are the kinds of so-called soft factors that should be at the heart of American public diplomacy, especially if we're talking about hearts and minds. So on that note, if you were in charge of training, if you were in charge of training U.S. diplomats overseas on interfaith dialogue, yeah. what are three most important takeaways you would like to leave them with? Oh, that's good. So the first is that religion is often a form of identity more than it is belief in practice. So I think most people think of I am religion. I am religious because I practice X, or I am religious because I believe Y. So if I don't practice anything, I don't believe anything, I'm not religious. But that's not the way most people in the world see religion. For most people, the statement, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim, I am a Christian, I am a Jew, I am a Baha'i, I am a Buddhist, those are not statements of practice or belief. Those statements in and of themselves don't tell you anything about what a person might practice or what a person might believe. Instead, those are fundamentally issues of identity. Uh, just like um, sexual orientation or gender identity or nationality or race or ethnicity are fundamentally identity markers, so too is religion. So I think some people just assume because you say you belong to a particular religious group, they can ascribe a certain set of beliefs or practices to you, and that's, I think, a dangerous way of thinking. There's as much diversity within each religion as there is between religions. That's why there's 30,000 denominations of Christianity. If all Christians believe, there is. There is. <laughs> so if all Christians believe the same thing, you would have one church, but you have 30,000 denominations. And even within those denominations, you have contentious debates about the way forward. There are many Hinduisms, there's many Islams, there's many Judaisms, right? And so to make a religion a monolithic entity where everyone who ascribes or identifies to that tradition believes or practices the same thing, I think is the wrong way to look at things. So. The first thing I would say is that think about religion as an identity marker more than as belief or practice in the same way that you would with other identity markers. And that can help frame some of the challenges one might encounter in working across religious difference in a global context. The th second thing I would say is don't believe the hype. <laughs> if you read the newspaper, uh, all you see is that religion is a source of conflict inherently. At its core, it's intractably a source of conflict. I don't find that to be true at all. But we know, and you know, we're sitting here in the best journalism school in the world, we know that uh, if it bleeds, it leads. And if it bleeds in the name of God, it gets the front page. And for young people, especially millennials and post-millennials, who are disassociating with formal religion at record rates, part of it is because the narrative of religion they were brought up with is one of religious violence and terrorism. It's one of patriarchy. It's one of exclusion. It's one of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. It's one of covering up child abuse. It's, uh, you know, it's one that um, seems to be hypocritical, especially in regard to female leadership. So that's the narrative they're raised with. And of course, all that's true. But it's one side of the equation. Religion is also a source for social justice. It's also a location where hospitals and universities are built. Um, you know, it's also a place of liberation theology. Every great social movement in the United States had its genesis in the church, whether it be anti-slavery, civil rights, environmental rights, um, et cetera, economic opportunity, what have you. So I think the full story needs to be told. And if we're only seeing religion as intractably a source of conflict, we're not thinking creatively about how it can be part of the solution. And religion can be part of a public diplomacy solution if the understanding of religion is more expansive than what people consume in their daily media. So the first would be religion is first and foremost a, sort of a form of identity, not belief in practice. The second would be don't believe the hype. Uh, the third, I would say, is 
when you bring people across faith traditions together, it's important to move beyond belief and into experience. So if I have a Jewish student, a Christian student, a Muslim student, a Hindu student, and I say to them, who is Jesus? The Jewish student will say, Jesus was a great rabbi. The Muslim student will say, Jesus was a great prophet. The Hindu student will say, Jesus was a great yogi. The Christian student will say, Jesus is a great Messiah. They're all right from their perspectives, but that's where the conversation ends. But if I ask those four students, what does prayer look like to you? What does justice mean to you? What does beauty mean to you? What does mercy look like for you? How does your tradition think of meditation? How does your tradition think of service to others? You know, what role do you want to play in your life? Those aren't really debatable sort of conversations. We can debate whether Jesus was a yogi or a messiah or a prophet or a rabbi, but I can't debate with you what prayer feels like for you. And in fact, that conversation humanizes you to me and me to you. And we begin to interact not as Jews and Christians and Muslims and Hindus, but as human beings, fundamentally as human beings. And I think that is the opportunity of interfaith to bring people together around shared human aspirations, not what makes God God, but what makes us human. And, um, you know, too often interfaith is framed as a, you know, my religion is better than yours or our religions are the exact same. But the reality is every religion is different. We can all learn from each other. There are things that make them different that we should celebrate. There are things that connect them that we should be aware of too. And where we have shared values and aspirations, hopes and dreams, we need to be able to work together. And so, you know, those would be my three, but, uh, but it really depends on the context in which it's happening. I imagine public diplomacy less about a state-to-state -state interaction, more about an individual or person-to-person -person interaction. And on that level, the interfaith conversations can go a long way. What do you think about the role of faith-based non-governmental organizations and, and nonprofits in doing international relations work? Well, some of them are doing extraordinary work. Um, you know, uh, I hope uh, I'm not you know, I don't think I will be betraying anyone's confidence here if I were to say that our great college here, named after Dana and David Dornsife, these extraordinary trustees and leaders, um, David and Dana Dornsife have personally worked on a project that has brought clean water to people in sub-Saharan Africa. Two to three million people have clean water because of the work they do. Now, their work, I think, is fundamentally inspired by their Christian faith. And yet the impact is extraordinary and probably benefits non-Christians more than even Christians. So in this role, they're not using service as a way to promote faith. They're not using service as a way to only focus on people of their faith, but their faith inspires them to action. To the extent that our faith can inspire us to action, you know, I think that's great. Where I think it gets tricky is when religious organizations go into countries with the idea of helping, but maybe with the motive of actually promoting their tradition over the local tradition. There's been a long history of colonialism, in, and part of colonialism has been um, the idea that the European powers are bringing civilization to the non-European regions of the world, Asia and Africa especially. Uh, so people are reluctant because as part of the colonial project, uh, missionaries came into these countries to convert the locals. Anything that looks like that, I think, would have a negative consequence. But that being said, in the form of colonial countries, even when people come in with a faith tradition, but they're doing work that impacts people across a spectrum, even and doesn't require a particular tradition, um, those entities are really welcome with open arms. And uh, lastly, I'll say that religion gives us answers to the fundamental questions of our life. 
And that's why the kind of inspiration one gets from religion is almost unparalleled in terms of their dedication or work to the service of others. If you are ultimately called to the work, that is the thing that drives you more than anything else. And so I would hate to, I would hate to create a public diplomacy environment which precludes faith practitioners or faith-based philanthropy from happening because the impact those organizations have can be as great as the impact of any organization. Seems like a really fine line. It's a fine line. <laughs> it's a fine line, and it's it's fraught with you know danger and uh, difficulty. But the danger or difficulty of engaging it shouldn't preclude us from trying to really implement uh, opportunities for faith-based organizations to do great work. Because, right. like I said, I I see all the great work that's happening in through faith-based organizations all the time, and we don't have to look so far from our own campus, many of our students will graduate with the name Dornsife on their diploma. They should be proud to have that name on their diploma. They should be inspired to have that name on their diploma. And um, and the more they learn about the Dornsife, I think the Dornsifes, the more they would appreciate how faith can translate into action. And sometimes I think there are organizations doing great work that people don't even realize is connected or to Or have faith their roots community. in their faith exactly. community. Like the American Red Cross, for example. We don't think of it maybe as a religious organization, but there would be no American Red Cross if not for a faith community. Right. So you're based here on campus. You are with students all the time. So how do you think that young people through interfaith dialogue and mutual understanding can pave the way for a better, more accepting, more tolerant future? Well, they already are. Um, their experiences are very different than the experiences of their parents or grandparents. Uh, one third of all marriages in the United States are interfaith marriages now. And that number starts at one half, but at some point a partner will convert to a tradition of a spouse. So by the time marriage actually rolls around, it's one third. But what does that mean? That means that most of our students don't just know people from other faith traditions. Increasingly, they're related to people from other faith traditions. When I went to college, I might have been the first Hindu that anyone met, and it was hard for me to try and carry the mantle of a 5,000-year-old civilization on my back when I myself wasn't even familiar with my own tradition, having grown up Hindu in the United States. But I'd be shocked if any of our students came to our campus today having never met someone of a different faith. I, I can't imagine that would ever happen. What we know is that learning about another faith is... Um, really helpful in making sure you're not prejudiced or discriminatory about that faith. And that's why I wanted to be a professor of religion, to teach people about other faiths as a way to decrease religious bigotry and discrimination. But what the data also tells us is more than knowing about a tradition is knowing someone from that tradition. That's the thing that actually would make sure that you wouldn't be discriminatory or biased against another tradition, knowing someone, loving someone of a different faith. That to me is the opportunity of a global research university like USC. You will meet people and students of all faiths, all backgrounds, all perspectives, all identities, right? And the more you grow in deep and loving relationships with your peers, the more empathetic you will be to those perspectives, identities, and experiences. The less you would be willing to objectify a community or discriminate against a community um, based on stereotypes or prejudices that you might have inherited because you know someone who actually is the counter-argument to those experiences. So oftentimes when we find well-integrated societies, we find a little less in terms of discrimination because it's hard to hate the other if you know the other. It's hard to be homophobic if your brother is gay. It's hard to be anti-Semitic if your girlfriend is Jewish. It's hard to be Islamophobic if your uncle is Muslim. 
it's hard to hate the other if you know the other, right? It's hard to hate the other if you love the other. And we can love the other right here at USC. And I think that's how we tell a different story about the world, a generational story, a story that pushes back against the cultural stereotypes that we might have inherited and empowers us to be that change that we want to see in the world. Do you see that narrative reflected outside of the USC campus? I do. It's a generational narrative. So, yes, I see it reflected in millennials and post-millennials across the country and across the world. But the differences are often generational. You're very different than your parents or grandparents. Your grandparents were uh, only 2% unaffiliated with religion, and you're 40% unaffiliated with religion. In just two generations, we've seen the most dramatic transformation of American, the American religious landscape than we've ever seen in our nation's history. So uh, it's very much a generational story. The good news here is that we live in a young world. 60% of Indians are under the age of 30. 60% of Chinese are under the age of 30. 60% of the Muslim world is under the age of 30. Three and a half billion people are under the age of 30. So this new story, generational story, uh, I think, is one that will be reflected when students assume positions of power. We're at the front end of it. And that's how we get better. That's why we get a little better every generation, because it's change happens generationally. I know, I know Martin Luther King, we're celebrating or commemorating the 50th, I guess commemorating, mourning really, the 50th uh, anniversary of his assassination. Um, and he was, he didn't say this, but he popularized the idea. He said it, but he didn't originally say it. Um, he popularized the idea that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It doesn't take a sharp turn towards justice. It doesn't immediately get to justice. There's no quick path to justice. It's a slow bend over just over towards justice. But if you think about it generationally, you might think that these are dark times we're living in, and in many ways they are. But this is the best time in American history that it has ever happened, ever existed if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're interested in peace, if you're interested in justice, if you're a grassroots organizer, if you're an immigrant. Even though it's a difficult time, it's still the best time in American history to be Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Sikh in the United States. So when you look at the history of the country, you realize that actually we're in a pretty great place right now, even if it doesn't always feel that way. And that change is frustrating because it's generational, but we can't waste the generational opportunities for change. Well, knowing what good faith can do and how faith and justice often do go hand in hand, do you find that 40% unaffiliated number problematic? Well, what it is, it's 40% not affiliated with formal religion, but only 2 to 3% that are actually atheists or humanists or agnostics. It's not that students are giving up God or meaning or purpose or prayer or significance or authenticity or community or the things that religion has traditionally provided. It's that they have a distrust of the institutions that have provided those things. So you might walk away from the church, but you don't walk away from God. You might walk away from the church, but you don't walk away from the Bible, right? You might walk away from your mosque community, but you're still praying five times a day. So you're formally disaffiliated with a congregation, a tradition, an institution. But that doesn't mean you leave that quest behind. And so uh, I think when we say 40% non-affiliated, people think we mean 40% not religious. Yes, that's not true at all, actually. Um, it's just that our gen- students think of their journey more in terms of spiritual aspirations than religious ones. I think for many of our students, religion is the structure it's, and spirituality is the personal engagement. Um, Religion is someone else's stories, but spirituality is your own story. And so 
uh, two thirds of our students say they're more spiritual than religious. Uh, I don't know what that means for all of them. Um, I think that's something that all of, stu- all of our students have to work through themselves. But I think what that means is that even if they've rejected some of the answers that formal religion seeks to provide, they haven't walked away from the questions that define spirituality. For me, spirituality is about the questions, religion's about the answers. We have to be comfortable living the questions, breathing the questions, celebrating the questions, the questions that make us human. Who am I? What does my life mean? What matters to me? Why does it matter to me? How do I translate my values into action? What role do I want to play? How do I live the best possible version of my life? How do I live a life of authenticity, purpose, meaning, identity, significance? Those are the things that make us human. Those are the questions that have animated humans from the beginning of human history. That differentiates us from other sentient beings, from animals, from plants, et cetera. This is what it means to be human, to ask those questions. I think at a research university, we expect our students to know all the answers. And that makes the act of asking questions sometimes uncomfortable. But it's okay to ask and live the questions even if you don't know the answers. It's powerful stuff. (laughs) A few days ago, I was driving on the freeway and I saw a bumper sticker and it said, same light, different bulbs. Mm, that's nice. And to me, that was like that was a God moment. Like, yeah. I'm about to interview Dean yeah, Sony, well. and this is what pops up. Man. <laughs> yes, that's a very Hindu idea, the kind of idea that I was raised with, which is many paths up the mountain, but they're all going the same place. Mm. That uh, one of the, the oldest Hindu texts, which might actually be the oldest religious text in the world, says God is one, but the wise call God by many names. Or you mm. could read it as truth is one, but the wise call truth by many names. Different strokes for different folks. We're all on a human journey. Your path is as good for you as my path is as good for me. And I think that the traditions that don't make exclusive truth claims are the ones that are going to endure for millennials and post-millennials. Good stuff. Thank you so much <laughs> Thank for you. Thank joining you. me and having this conversation. No, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Some deep questions. I appreciate uh, all the thought you put into this. Special thanks to the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, specifically Lisa Rao, who made this possible, the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, and Caleb Trask, who provided our theme music, which comes from his EP, Across the Water. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Looking forward to bringing you the next episode, so stay tuned.